the title of this evening's talk is Original Mind. There's two very important concepts in the Buddhist teachings. One of them is emptiness and the other is compassion. And what you'll hear from us over the days is a flow between these two teachings, teachings on emptiness and teaching on compassion. The talk that I gave the first night was a talk on compassion or awakening the heart. You might say the aspect of the, of the, of the loving heart qualities that we need to develop in ourselves, which is a very important aspect of what it is that we're doing here. And the other aspect is that understanding and emphasis on emptiness or the insubstantiality of things. This is the emphasis on wisdom or developing the insight and the understanding into what these teachings are about. Emptiness and compassion are are sometimes thought of as two wings of the bird, that without each, without both, the bird can't fly. Both are very crucial and important to the teachings and to the understanding and the deepening of our, of our insight and our openness. So tonight I want to shed a little bit light on emptiness to go into this a little bit so perhaps we can have some taste or some understanding of, of where this fits into our practice, where this fits into how we understand our own mind. One very good place to look when we talk about emptiness is looking at the thinking mind. It's really, in a way, where we need to start. And whether you're a very experienced meditator or whether this is your first retreat, I'm sure you've had enough time by now in the retreat to see, once again, the power of the mind. This is what we come here really to confront or to look at. You know, we sit down and there's not really very much of anything else going on. We're just doing some sitting and some walking some eating and taking care of ourselves, but there's this mind, (laughs) this mind that follows us everywhere. And for the most part, it seems completely out of control. And for those of you who are looking at it for the first time, and there may be some people in the hall who really have not turned their awareness toward their own minds in the way they are over these days, It's just amazing. For many, it's the first insight. The first insight, uh, these teachings are called insight teachings or insight meditation. The first insight is to see the uncontrollability of our own mind. It's also likened to a drunken monkey. A drunken monkey that just swings from one branch to the next looking for what it wants what's going to make it happy, what's going to satisfy it. Just swinging and swinging. And the problem is that we feel like that monkey (laughs) is swinging and just like lost and out of control. So the teachings are very much 
embodied in what's called a training. This is a training that we're doing here, a training of the mind, so that we may be able to bring this monkey under control. So perhaps we don't have to feel so victimized and sometimes abused by our own minds. And this is really the task at hand to to a great extent, is to begin to understand and have some uh, realization of how we can begin to bring this mind under control. And this is a training, and it's like learning any skill. It's like learning any learning any uh, activity. I often think of it like learning (coughs) to ride a bicycle because the very first time, and probably everybody in here has learned to ride a bicycle, although I'm not sure, (laughs) but the very first time that we get, we see this bicycle and we want to get on top of it, we want to climb onto it, we fall off. You know, you try to balance on that bicycle and it's very wobbly. You don't really know what's involved, what mechanics are involved to stay on top of that bicycle. And so we get on, we fall off, we get on, and there may be somebody there who kind of shows us what we have to do, you know, pedal the pedals or hold on to the handlebars. And we have to learn how to get our balance as we're doing it. And if it's one of these more fancy bikes, you know, now it has all the speeds and the handbrakes and you know, all the things you have to learn about it. But you get on, you fall off. You get back on, you learn a few more things, you fall off. You get back on. And meditation is exactly the same way. We find that we keep falling off. We want to get back on, we, and, and getting back on for us is, is using our breath here, getting back onto our breath, feeling the breath, feeling that attention in our body, but we fall off doesn't stay there. So we have to bring it back. And we find, and I'm sure you've found so far as well, that something starts to change. You notice, oh yeah, I can stay on the breath a little bit longer. And there's a real satisfaction that starts to come from that. We say, ah, yeah, we feel, we feel the relief, we feel, feel the ease when we, when we can stay a little bit more steady within ourselves. And what we find over time, like when we were learning to ride the bicycle, is that at some point we hop on and we take off and we don't have to think about it anymore. The whole organism, the whole body just knows how to do that. There's no more trying. There's no more overcoming. There's really no more obstacle. We just know and it's just straightforward. It's the same with the meditation, but it takes time, takes, takes some effort, takes some attention, takes some time to understand what it is that we're doing. So this is a training, a training of the mind. And how, what, how might we say what we're trying to accomplish in this training? Sometimes particularly in the beginning, people think that what we're trying to do is to actually stop the thoughts. That when we see how out of control our thoughts are, they can become the enemy. 
our thoughts are the enemy. We have to get rid of them. We have to stop them. We have to keep them from coming. They're so, they can be so painful or so infuriating. So we think we have to get them all out, get rid of them. But as far as I know, no one has really accomplished this. And I think that, from what I understand, it's not really what we're trying to accomplish at all. So if we're not trying to get rid of our thoughts, then what are we trying to do? Because I think that we can see that, in some ways, thoughts are really important. They're actually quite natural. They're a natural fabrication of this being that we are, and we need our thoughts. Our thoughts give us information about our world. They give us direction. They give us meaning and purpose. So we don't want to get rid of them. But what do we want to do then? How can we live so that we're not victimized, we're not victimized by our thoughts? It seems that what this training is pointing to is to show us how to see thoughts for what they are. We need to really see them for what they are. What are they? What are these thoughts in the mind? When we turn our attention towards them and we really take a look, what do we see? It's not really quite sure what kind of language to use to describe what we see, but it's something like these momentary blips in the mind, (laughs) some kind of flash, some kind of momentary happening in the mind that somehow seem to take on whole realities. (laughs) Somehow, in some kind of mysterious way, these firing synapses (laughs) in our brains give rise to this whole reality, this whole drama that we live in. But when we see them for what they are, they're really very insubstantial. We may say that they're empty of any solidity. They're empty of any solid reality. Then what happens that they seem to take on this this amazing world, this amazing realm? It seems that one way to talk about it is to talk about thoughts as a movie. It seems that the mind is very much like a movie. And when we go to to a movie, what we're really seeing is that in the back, there's a film projector that has a strip of film, this plastic thing. I think they're still doing that unless the technology has changed. There's this plastic thing, and when you look at it, it has these frames, these isolated frames on the film. And when you put that film in the projector and shine some light on it and, and put some motion to it, the frames, the individual frames, begin to take on a associated story. There's one frame, and then another frame, and another frame, And because of the continuity, because of the sequence of each of these frames, they seem to take on a whole story. And then we watch the story, 
and we get all involved in it, and we get all emotional, and we cry, and we get upset, and we get totally involved in the story. But what is it that we're actually watching? If we just step back a minute and we take a look, it's just this, these shadows, this color and light and shadow on a screen. There's nothing there, no substance to it. But there's some condition of the mind, there's some strength in the mind that gets hooked, that gets drawn in. But what's really there? In our own minds, the same thing happens. There's just a thought, and then there's another thought, and then there's another thought. And because of the continuity of these thoughts, it starts to take shape. It starts to have meaning. And we forget. We get caught. We get hooked in as if it's the true reality. And our thoughts move between the three times. They move between the past, the present, and the future. You know, the mind has the ability to make up this vast period of time. So we can move, the mind can move far into the early times of our birth and our childhood, all the way into the time when we're going to be old and sick and die. And we can create this whole fabrication in our whole mind. And somehow we believe it. We think that it's all true. When we start to really look into the reality, into the truth of this manifestation, and we start to see and understand what thought really is, the mind has less power to overwhelm us. And we begin to break free of its, of its hypnotic trance of the trance that we fall into in the believability of our own minds. Our minds only have the power when we give it the power. Thoughts only have reality if we give them reality. As one teacher of mine, Manindraji, from India, who used to come and visit our retreats early in my practice years, and he used to always say in the, in the instructions, he would say, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's just a thought. <laughs> and I used to love that. It's the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's just a thought. But how easily, how easily we forget. We really think that we're here with our mother. And we act the whole thing out in all of its emotion and conflict. This is from Dugal Kinsey Rinpoche, who's a great Tibetan master. He uh, passed away a few years ago. Like waves, all the activities of this life have rolled endlessly on, yet they have left us empty-handed. Myriads of thoughts have run through our minds, but all they have done is increase our confusion and dissatisfaction. Normally, we operate under the deluded assumption that everything has some sort of true, substantial reality. But when we look more carefully, we find that the phenomenal world is like a rainbow, vivid and colorful, but without any tangible existence. When a rainbow appears, we see many beautiful colors, 
Yet a rainbow is not something we can clothe ourselves with or wear as an ornament. It simply appears through the conjunction of various conditions. Thoughts arise in the mind in just the same way. They have no tangible reality or intrinsic, intrinsic existence at all. There is therefore no logical reason why thoughts should have so much power over us, nor any reason why we should be enslaved by them. So this is what we're trying to see into. Why is it that we are so enslaved? Because this is what causes us so much pain. It causes us so much suffering. And as we can begin to see into the truth of these manifestations, we can start to feel a bit more ease. We may feel a bit more freedom in ourselves. But the dilemma is that when a thought arises, somehow we get pulled in, we get hooked, we get seduced by these blips in the mind. We get caught in the continuity of their sequence. One teacher called this Velcro mind. It's like the thoughts, <laughs> the thoughts are like Velcro in the mind. Velcro is great if you, you know, when you just touch it and it sticks instantly and then to pull it apart, you know, it makes this <laughs> tremendous sound when Velcro is pulled apart. You know, it's really, our thoughts are so much like that. Like Velcro, something just starts to stick. And we find that even with some awareness, even with some understanding, it's still hard to pull ourselves back. Pull ourselves away, back into the spaciousness, back into the stillness, back into the here and now. Something pulls us, we get lost. One yogi here said, she sees it like blowing up a balloon. It's this little <laughs> kind of empty <laughs> plastic thing and you blow and blow and blow and it starts becoming really big. <laughs> she sees that happening in her own mind. Her mind just becomes really big, just from nothing, just from this, this air. The thoughts become so real, they become our whole reality. There's one concept that I like very much that helps me realize what it is that I do in my own mind. It's called painting tigers on the wall. And it comes from a little story that one of my teachers told me of, it, of uh, some, some Indians from a long time ago who painted beautiful pictures in the caves. And this one time, this one man was in the cave and he really was painting this wonderful image of this tiger. And he just kept, he painted it and he was putting more detail on it and more color on it. And the tiger started to come really alive. And when he really looked at it, he went, oh no, there's a tiger! And he ran out of the cave. You know? Painting tigers on the cave. And in a similar way, that, that image really holds a lot for me because I see that, I see I do that in my own mind, painting tigers, I'm painting tigers. And I have to be so careful just to realize I'm the one painting them. 
maybe they don't have so much more reality. You know, sometimes I do a very good job. (laughs) But usually we don't see what we're doing. And this is the delusion. This is the veil. We get caught. There's like a veil over the eyes. We can't see clearly. We get entangled. Have you seen this today? (laughs) Probably a silly question. Can you see this in your own mind? How some thought arises and it pulls us to action. You know, it might just be the thought, oh, I can't bear this walking meditation for another minute. I've got to go have a cup of tea. You know, the cup of tea is really going to make me feel much better in myself. And just follow it. It just, that thought becomes some kind of manifestation in the body. And all of a sudden we see the body moving and we find ourselves there having a cup of tea. You know, just becomes so real. Or maybe some kind of memory, something that we're going over from the past. We go over it and over it, and the story just seems to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and finally we just realize that it's totally exhausting and it's not getting us anywhere. And there's some kind of recognition that we can burst that bubble momentarily and take a few breaths and come back to where we are. It might just be a painful sensation in the body. It might be a pain in the knee, and then that pain in the knee starts getting stronger, and then we start to think, oh no, if I don't get up and start to walk, I might really hurt my leg. And then, and if I hurt my leg, oh, I won't be able to do my running, and then if I don't do my running, I'm going to start gaining weight, and I really had this problem with my weight, and if I... And then we're off. Not really just staying with the sensation. So we get tangled, get tangled in the tangle of our own minds. So, how can we untangle this tangle? What are these teachings offering us that can help us with this? I think that one thing it points to is that the teachings are asking us to find something within ourselves that is stronger than our thinking minds. To find something that we can actually begin to control these minds with. We might call this an inner power or an inner strength in our own being. We can call it awareness. We can call it wisdom. We can call it original mind. It's that which sees things clearly. It's that which knows what's true. That's the wisdom. That's the wisdom aspect, that which knows what's true. And it can arise in just a moment, in an instant. It can be there in an instant when the veil is lifted and we see the mind for what it is. We see ourselves for who we are. This is from another great teacher, Ajahn Chah, who 
taught in this century, a teacher of some of my teachers, a forest monk in Thailand, about this mind. In truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply an aspect of nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because moods deceive it. The untrained mind is stupid. Sense impressions and thoughts come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, or sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness are not the mind, but a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. Then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really this mind of ours is, is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful. It just, it's just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. The fluttering is due to those sense impressions and thoughts. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. If we know fully the true nature of sense impressions and thoughts, we are unconcerned. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we train the mind to know those those impressions and not get lost in them, to make it peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. <coughs> to touch that which is unmoving, that which doesn't follow every thought, every feeling, every mood, So here we cultivate this awareness. We cultivate this awake aspect of our mind. We empower that part of ourselves. We strengthen that part of ourselves so that we can look at things as they are. We can look at a thought. We can recognize a thought and see it as a thought before it blows up into some unwieldy construction, we might be able to see it for what it is, that the thought of my mother is not my mother. When it has no power, the thought dissolves, and we may experience that space in the mind. We may experience that quiet place in the mind when the thoughts aren't imposing so strongly when they're not gripping our consciousness. When we're not so overpowered by our thoughts and our concepts of things, maybe then we can just feel a breath when we breathe. We can feel the bare sensation in the body of that breath. Or we may just hear a sound without all the overlay of what we think is going on with that sound. It seems that one way, one place that this 
construction or this blowing up the balloon happens for some people is around these big black birds we have around here. (laughs) These rooks. They really seem to hook people. (laughs) Rather than just being sound passing through consciousness, it's an unpleasant sound. And it's an unpleasant sound that we really want to get rid of. And if we can just get rid of those damn birds. <laughs> I wouldn't have to experience this unpleasantness and this irritation, this agita- agitation in my mind. And then going on and on about there's a few people who've told wonderful stories of all the strategies they've thought of to get rid of those birds. <laughs> and I must say I might have thought a few of my own. <laughs> no, just, but yet possibly just a sound just the sound, and I'm sure sometimes you can hear it just in the background, just a texture, just a characteristic that arises and passes in consciousness. Or just a sensation in the body, just a bare sensation, just heat or cold or tingling or vibration, without the whole construction, without the whole overlay that comes into the mind about it but the possibility of just staying simply with that, that experience and finding the strength within ourselves to be able to touch that, to rest there, to stabilize in that place so that we don't get lost and blown up. This is from Wang Po, a 4th century Zen patriarch of China. Let the mind together with its world be quieted down to a perfect state of tranquility. Let thought be cast into the mystery of quietude so that the mind is kept from wandering to one thing and another. When the mind is tranquilized in its deepest abode, its entanglements are cut asunder. So we're touching something deep within us where we can rest where we can abide, where we can possibly feel that tranquility, when we're not so bothered by the impressions that come around us. When we feel stronger in ourselves, we feel this inner strength. When we feel more connected to our experience, and begin to access this inner power that's stronger than our own minds, we may be able to really face the difficult aspects in our mind more directly. We might call them our demons. To face our demons, because we have more strength. So we may be able to look at the pain, look at the anger, look at the fear, the jealousy, because it's held within this spaciousness of mind. We may not get so caught by it all, but we may be able to look more clearly at it and see it for what it is, begin to understand it more deeply. We, we have more strength. We have more confidence in ourselves to look at the difficult aspects of ourselves. I call this strength and this confidence sometimes the sword of wisdom that sword of wisdom that I can pull up and just cut through 
the knots and the entanglements of my own mind, of my own being. I have one teacher who calls these demons, these demons who come to visit us, he says they're like thieves in our house. You know, they're like thieves who come and they try to steal our precious jewels, our precious jewels, which is our peace and our happiness, our contentment. And sometimes we, we let them in the house. We don't know how to keep them out. Sometimes we even see them coming in. We, we, we don't want them there, but we feel helpless. We feel lost. We don't know what to do. And without that inner strength, without that, that sword to be able to cut through, to wield that sword, they can overrun our house. And we can feel victimized and abused by these thieves. There's one woman who was speaking in a group about having some very painful images arising. And she said she just couldn't stop them. They were really, and they'd been going on for some time, really feeling, feeling very abused by these images. And she thought that she should allow them even if she was overwhelmed by them, because she said that maybe they're teaching me something. Maybe I really need to listen. Maybe I really need to to see what's there, because maybe they're teaching something to me. Or maybe I need to be kind. I need to learn how to be friendly and kind to these thoughts, these images in my mind. The problem is she didn't see that they were thieves. (laughs) She didn't see they were disguising themselves as these very destructive forces in her mind that she needed to pull that sword out (laughs) and say, no, it's not okay for you to enter my house. I told her that she was too generous. She was being too kind (laughs) by allowing these thieves to come and sit at her table in her house, that she needed to tell them to go, that they were not welcome. They were not invited. She was not willing to have her house destroyed. She was not willing to have her jewels jewels taken away. And when we can gain this kind of confidence, we gain this kind of strength, then we can turn and face these difficult aspects and say, no, you're not welcome here. But we don't do it out of anger. We don't do it out of fear. We don't have to cower away from from them from fear. We don't have to strike them down with anger, but we can really approach them with wisdom, which is a loving response. It's a response that arises from wisdom and clarity and love for our own being, for our own truth. It doesn't arise from fear and from anger. This is what we want to strengthen. This is what we want to begin to taste and touch in ourselves. This is the hope that can happen as we spend time sitting and walking in the silence. And by letting the thoughts gently go, by seeing, turning towards the thoughts and seeing them for what they are, and seeing that we don't have to allow them to destroy us or victimize us, but perhaps we can find some resources, a way to come back into the stillness, into the spaciousness. 
into the beauty of our own being. Or as one person said today, back home, finding a way to come home, to come home to that place where it is beautiful, where it is quiet, where it is still. When we develop this awareness, when we develop this strength in our own mind, one factor that is strengthened is the factor of discrimination. We call discriminating awareness. Discrimination is a characteristic of awareness, and it's one that gets stronger as we strengthen into awareness. We see that we can't throw all of our thoughts away and that we don't need to throw all of our thoughts away or get rid of them. So what we need to do is learn how to discriminate our thoughts. We learn what thoughts are necessary to follow and what are not useful to follow. What thoughts are going to help us and what thoughts are not going to help us. And as we start to see more clearly, we really can start to discriminate in our own minds when we have some thoughts. If I continue following this thought, if I continue looking at this thought, Is this going to lead to more harmony? Is it going to lead to more love? Is it going to lead lead to more friendship? Or is this thought leading me to more pain? Is it leading me to more conflict, to more suffering, to more destruction? And we can really start to ask ourselves these questions as we find ourselves getting involved in these dialogues and these conversations. Is this helpful? Is this helpful? Because sometimes we may find that actually having some uh, reminiscence, having some reflection about certain things is helpful. And this is how we bring in wise reflection into the meditation. We don't say that all thoughts are wrong or, or bad or should be finished with, but there is a place for wise reflection. There is a way for looking over situations and getting a sense whether we could do something differently or whether we could learn something from the situation. But we have to be very careful because we can so easily start to embellish it and, and it can so easily start to twist and to turn and then we can find ourselves back into the old destructive thought patterns again. So we need to keep a very clear discriminating awareness as we enter into thought because it can be so tricky and so seductive. This is from the Buddha in the Dhammapada. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind, and trouble will follow you, as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you, as your shadow, unshakable. So, we begin to pay attention to what to follow. And this is what increases our mastery. 
This is what increases our sense of strength and confidence in the world because we know we have a choice and we feel the strength of that in ourselves that we can say, no, I don't want to follow this. No, this isn't useful. No, this isn't helpful for me. The Buddha said, we can be a master of our thoughts. He said, I can think the thoughts I want to think and not think the thoughts I don't want to think. That's clarity. (laughs) To be the master of your thought so that we are no longer drawn into areas that cause us pain and we know how to work skillfully with ourselves in those ways. So what kinds of thoughts are encouraged to follow here? We encourage loving-kindness. We encourage compassion. We encourage letting go and renunciation, generosity. We encourage kindness, forgiveness, tolerance. We let these thoughts expand. If you have a loving thought about something that you want to do for somebody, you feel the, the, the beauty and the joy of that thought. And you see that it dissolves, it goes away. But it's a beautiful movement of the heart, a beautiful movement of the mind. If you see that by sitting for uh, an hour, sitting 15 minutes after the bell rings, and you're starting to get quite tight and tense and agitated in yourself, but you think it's a really good idea to keep sitting there because you've never sat for an hour before, and then you start feeling all this pain in the body, you might have to say, this isn't actually what I need right now. Maybe I need to let go. And that thought is a thought to follow. Follow that thought. Listen to that thought. It's a thought of wisdom. It's a thought of compassion. So we begin to have more choice. We begin to have more control. This is how our reality starts to shift. Our whole world starts to shift. And we draw to us that which is wholesome, that which is positive, caring, loving. And we start to draw away from that which is destructive and conflictive and painful. Start to be able to see what is giving rise to those aspects within ourselves. And more and more, we come to clarity. We come to strength. We know the original mind. Let's sit quietly together for a few minutes. 